We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast. I'm Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell. And Colby, how are we doing on this Sunday night? Have, we, have you had enough time to digest the, uh, the loss from Oklahoma State in Ames? Not really. No, not really. It's only been about 24 hours and that's not, no. It's a, it's no, a hard no. A hard no. To answer your question. Hard no. It's a hard no, and uh, we're going to get into <laughs> I, I, we were talking before we hit record. I was like, I don't even know where to start with this one. It's just there's so much to get into, so much to question um, and, and get into. But first, let's hear from Chris's University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop. Be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com. It's homecoming week. Kansas is on the schedule. It's always good to schedule, schedule Kansas during homecoming. You're never going to get a win unless – the Oklahoma Sooners found out that's not a guarantee going up to Lawrence, but uh, I would think OSU will have no trouble with Kansas at home in Stillwater. But homecoming, such a great time in Stillwater, walk-arounds. It's an exciting time this week. So when, when you're in town for Stillwater, go go by Chris's, and they'll, they'll hook you up with some of the latest gear to get you ready for Saturdays and uh, the basketball season coming up as well. So, Colby, let's just, uh, let's just get into this as best we can. I kind of want to start with the obvious let's just let's just go ahead and start with the fourth down play and the fourth down call because I think that's going to be the biggest talking point or has been the biggest talking point from this game um the call to me was interesting the 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 quick the quick out to Presley I don't know if that was a called RPO to where Sanders had the option to hand it off or throw it that's always kind of gray area a little bit with that type of play but Man, Presley did such a good job to to break that initial. You know, he got hit pretty hard on that initial tackle. And Godlevsky, have you seen Deadpool two? By the way, uh, no, I've seen Deadpool one. I haven't seen the second one yet. Well, I couldn't find a GIF of it. I was gonna tweet the clip, but there's a there's a scene in there where Deadpool grabs one of the bad guys and just hugs him, and then pulls himself into like oncoming traffic. That's basically what Godlevsky did with Brent Presley. He just sacrificed himself, bear hugged him, and just like kind of suplexed him across the first down line. First down line is what it appeared. It appeared Presley was not down. He was on top of Godlevsky, and it looked like Presley got past the 40-yard line. But they didn't get it. They reviewed it, and that, that really was the game. Yeah, it was. And it's one of those where you don't know if it was an RPO. I would guess that it probably wasn't for the simple fact that I, I wouldn't think that in that situation they would want Spencer having to make a read. They want a concrete call, go out, execute, get it done. Now, that screen pass had been working on that particular drive. They were whipping it out there, getting six, seven yards. The difference is on fourth and two, I mean, all those defenders are sucked up close to the line of scrimmage now, much closer to the line of scrimmage than they were earlier in the drive whenever you're inside your own territory. Um, you know, it was a hell of an effort to even get as far as he did and bounce off the first tackle. And the thing is, whatever they called on the field was going to stand. If they would have marked him six inches further forward and gone in and reviewed it, it would have stood. They marked him about, I don't, it looked like what, three or four inches short. It, it stood because do I think that Brennan Presley was on top of Godlevsky's body and got across the first down line? Yes, I do. But there were a lot of bodies around there. There was no camera going down the line. The camera was from behind the play. And we can't see his right shoulder. We can't see his right hip. We can't – there's just 
the reality is when you get a pile of bodies like that and we're still just kind of guessing whenever it comes to spotting the football in the year 2021, we're, we're just kind of guessing and they have to guess in real time. They guessed Iowa State's way. Shocker. I mean, just like the field goal in 2011, they guessed Iowa State's way on a ball that was above the upright. Shocker. It's just that's the way that it goes in Ames. So, you know, I didn't hate the play call. I, I could see what they were seeing there to go that route uh, and try to get, you know, just a quick hitter out to the side and get upfield a few yards. It didn't work out. You, you live with that. Uh, I certainly did not think that that was the, the mistake that cost Oklahoma State that game. We'll put it that way. No, there was there was a lot more that, that went into it. And Presley was quoted as saying, I truly believe if they call that a first down, we go down and score and win that game. So it it's a heartbreaker that it comes down to that. And and look, I know Fox and ESPN, they're like any other business past COVID. They've had a ton of layoffs. They have they have far fewer cameras than they ever used to have pre COVID. That's just a fact. I think there was a lot of criticism of Fox for that. That was the only angle we had was kind of that overhead shot from an angle. They didn't have anything down the line. They didn't have any of that. And that's – and I understand with COVID and financial stuff and all of those things, they're just – they're not as – they're understaffed. They're not as well-staffed as they used to be. But it's literally deciding games, Colby. The, the lack of camera angles determined this game. I mean – you're right in that the call they made was most likely going to stand, but if there's a better angle where you could clearly see, like literally a, a field-level camera down the line, you were going to be able to see, for the most part, Presley on top of Godlevsky and his shoulder pads going across the 40 with the football. But it, it, it kind of reminds me of, do you remember when, when Oklahoma lost in Lubbock back in like the – back when, like, Dvorak and those guys were there with Mike yeah, Leach. Yeah, I think I know the game you're referencing, yeah. There was a play on the goal line, and as I'm talking, I can't remember. The, I, think, I think Tech was reaching across the goal line, or OU was. I, I can't remember the, the scenario, but basically they didn't have the camera angle to, to determine what actually happened. So they, it, it went against Oklahoma, and they were very critical of it. And I think it's very apt here, Colby. Just They didn't really have a great angle to really disprove the, the original spot. Yeah, I always thought it, it's crazy that you don't have an angle going down the line to gain, especially, you know, back in the day, we used to not even have that on the goal line, and now they've switched that. For the most part, not always, not 100% of the time, but for the most part, you've got a camera going down the goal line. I just, I think that there has to be a dedicated camera going down the line to gain. It's, like you said, it's deciding games in what is a multi-billion dollar industry, and, I mean, Oklahoma State, 6-0, and uh, pardon me, six and one or seven and zero. Oh, you know they win that game. Then all of a sudden they're in the driver's seat to make it to Jerry's World with still an outside chance at the college football playoff. It's incredibly difficult to go undefeated in college football. It would have been a long shot that Oklahoma State would have gone undefeated, but you never know. And now we know because Oklahoma State did not get the benefit of the doubt on a call that basically a line judge is standing there and a line judge in real time with about eight guys tugging on each other one way or the other. A line judge has to decide in real time within six inches where to put that ball down. And look, I, I'm not even blaming him. It, it's not his fault. Brendan Presley was on the other side of Godlevsky. It was a very tough spot for him to make. The first hit knocked him back. His guy's dragging him forward, but he's on the ground. It's hard to see. That's not that guy's fault. It's the fault of, um, you know, just the fact that we don't have cameras down the line. We don't have the right angle. It, it's, and it's crazy to me that 
we still have to have such overwhelming evidence to overturn a call when that guy is clearly guessing. Like, obviously, you don't want to overturn everything, but if you can look at a call and say with 90% certainty that guy was across the line to gain without being down. To me, at that point, if 90 out of 100 people think that he, he had the line to gain, that's good enough evidence for me. That's good enough. But we still, you got to be 100%. We're, we're going to defer to the guy who was standing on the sideline with eight bodies in his way and, and the ball carrier on the other side of his offensive lineman to get that determined. It's just, I think that that's flawed. And you know what we ought to do, Carson? We ought to just start placing bets on whatever needs to happen to keep Oklahoma State away from Jerry's world because it just seems like since the Big 12 championship came back, there's always – there's one or two things that happen whenever Oklahoma State has, it has a good season going that just shift the entire balance of the conference and give somebody else a fast track to Jerry's world and puts Oklahoma State on the outside looking in. And we saw it again. Oklahoma State would have been a near lock to be at Jerry's world and a remarkable series of events has to happen to keep them from winning in Ames. And that series of events happened. Yeah, and I just think if they win that game, it, you, you put the Jerry World almost on the back burner because you win that game, they've got a soft schedule besides Oklahoma left. You start talking about playoff. That's, that's the situation Oklahoma State was going to be in if they had won that game. I mean, their resume is light years better than Oklahoma's coming into that game, especially if they had beaten Iowa State on the road. And I think they would have been in the legitimate conversation to make the playoff. I, re I really do. And so that, that is a bitter pill to swallow. But, but you're so right that it came down to far more than that play. And I picked this game, I believe, on the nose. I didn't go back and listen to my prediction. I think I picked 24-21 Iowa State. And the reason was I was concerned if Jalen Warren got bottled up, what was going to happen. And he did. He had 76 yards on just 18 carries, which was kind of shocking considering – he was averaging about 30 to 35 over the last four or five games. But I, I give Oklahoma State a lot of credit, Cole, because how, how many times have we come on here and just bemoan the fact that they run the ball on first down? Well, they, they threw the ball, I believe, 12 of 25 times on first down, which is a far – that doesn't sound like a ton. That's far more than it's been, I guarantee you, on, on first down. But just the bottom line is I was concerned about Jalen Warren getting going and what, what was going to happen, and I trusted – I thought Brock Purdy was a better quarterback than, than Sanders. And Sanders played great. We'll get into his game. But just Jalen Warren and the, and the offense, they weren't able to get the running game going like they had in, in weeks past. I think that was probably the biggest difference in the whole game. Yeah, that was – I mean, Iowa State did a great job up front. And I actually thought Casey Dunn called a pretty good game. Like you said, there were a couple times where they got him on first down with some play action. I thought the offense, uh, you know – did what they could in what was a hard-fought physical just battle for four quarters. I really thought Casey Dunn had a pretty good game. I thought Jim Knowles had a pretty good game. I thought the head coach had an absolute train wreck, unmitigated disaster of a game. It is 2021. Every football coach, nearly every football coach on the planet – is using analytics to help make decisions and is putting their teams in the best positions to win games. And Mike Gundy still trusts his kicker more than he trusts anyone else on his team. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand, you know, it's not Dan Bailey. I said this on Twitter. Dan Bailey is not your kicker. 
In the second quarter, they run, uh, they run Tanner Brown out there for a 50-yard attempt on what was fourth down and two. It was not fourth and 11. It was not fourth and seven. It was fourth and two. You're telling me that you think your chances of having Tanner Brown, who has played all of two games and has made five field goals, he made one 39-yarder, everything else was less than 30 yards. It's not like this is some proven elite kicker. You run him out from 50, that field goal never happened had a chance you would have had a much better chance getting two yards and then in the second half you've got fourth down and inches and we're not talking about you know 18 inches based on where that spot came in I think they would have had less than a foot to gain and you run Tanner Brown out again from the right hash from 32 yards and he missed it and, and there's just no way I, and people were trying to justify it to me on Twitter. I, I got into a, a big back and forth with a mutual friend that we have about it over text. You can't justify to me attempting a field goal in either one of those situations. You know, people, people are in my Twitter mentions like, oh, on that 32-yarder, you got to take the points there. What points? What points? Do you see the points? And I'm not even judging the result. Even if he makes it, it's the wrong call. Go get six inches and give your team the best chance to win the game. I, I just – field goals aren't automatic. And Mike Gundy, I'm sure he'll come out tomorrow at his press conference and talk about the need to execute. you got to execute on field goals. You've got to execute as a head coach. You've got to give your offense a chance to be successful and go win the game. Even Spencer Sanders, when they pulled the offense off the field, Spencer's on the sideline like, what is going on? What is going on that we're standing over here and Tanner Brown's out there on the hash? Let us go win the football game. Give us a chance, coach. That's what we want is a chance to win the football game. And I just, Carson, I am so, so exhausted with watching the kicker run out in a situation where he should obviously be standing on the sidelines. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not even asking for Dan Bailey. Like, if you had Alex Hale without it without his yips i mean alex hale last year was a good kicker i understand going for a 50 yarder if you had that guy was unbelievable last year before he got hurt if you if you had an all-american type kicker college kickers are inconsistent even when you have a really good one now if you have gabe burkage from ou or dan bailey of years past okay I mean, if you want to try and kick a 50 yarder they're all american type kickers i'm good with that the decision should already be made for Mike that you're playing a walk-on that you replaced your kicker who had the yips. Like at what point, like 32 yarder, like I'm with you, like I, you are way more aggressive than even I am. And I'm, I'm very aggressive in terms of going forward on fourth down because the analytics say everything. And just, just, if you, if you watch enough college football, like settling for 32 yard field goals is not going to win a college football game. And, and it certainly, it certainly did not in this case, but, the decision should already be made for Mike. The fact you have Tanner Brown out there, who's done an admirable job filling in to this point, but he shouldn't even be in that situation. And when you have to look in the mirror after the game as the head coach, who do you want to put the game, wh whose hands do you want to put the game in? Tanner Brown or Jalen Warren or Spencer Sanders? That's, that's not even a conversation. And, and here's probably the reasoning for, for Mike deciding this. They were really bad in short yardage. I believe they were three of seven on third and short. So they weren't doing great on third and short. He didn't trust his, his offense to, to get it done, which I still think you put it in your best player's hands. But the one that stuck out to me most is when they, they run the wildcat with Jalen Warren, he gets it down to fourth and one, and they settle for the field goal. It's like, well, 
why did you run the wildcat with Jalen Warren? That's obviously a play you're setting up to go for it on fourth down. Like you're running it on third and mid to, mid to long. I don't know, man. And and this has been a constant gripe under Mike. And in years past, he's had he's always had a good kicker for the most part throughout his career. So maybe this is just old habits die hard. But you would think, Colby, the decision should be made for him already. And, all, and you're on the road too, Colby. Like that's a whole other factor here. You're in Ames. Place is going psycho. Your offense is doing good enough to get it in that short yardage. Go trust him to get the first down. If you're at home and you've had most of the momentum all night, okay, well then if you want to kick a field goal, fine. But just scared money don't make none. And I'm with you. I thought Mike had a terrible game as the head coach of putting his team in the best possible situation to win the game. And this is the same coach that went for it down on the goal line against Baylor with the game on the line. Like, I thought we had kind of turned a corner a little bit, and that's a chip shot field goal with the lead. You're trying to come back and win this game. And so I just – I thought those decisions were were maddening. Well, and my thing is, you know, we got good Spencer yesterday. Spencer was not loose with the ball. He, he was not just kind of throwing it up for grabs. Spencer played well yesterday. He was taking care of the football. On fourth and inches, you've got two options. On the left side of the scale, you've got Spencer Sanders, Jalen Warren, Brennan Presley, and Tay Martin. And on the right side of the scale, you've got Tanner Brown. And on the left side of the scale, if it works, you're probably going to get seven. Right side of the scale, if it works, because again, these are college kickers. This is not Justin Tucker. On the right side of the scale, if it works, you get three. And you choose to trust Tanner Brown in that moment. And people are in my, my mentions talking about, well, you just got to execute. Kicker's got to make that kick. Sure, Tanner Brown should have made the 32-yarder, not the 50-yarder. A 50-yarder in college football, unless you have, like, Gabe Burkage or Dan Bailey when he was at Oklahoma State, that is a, a, a low percentage kick from 50 yards. From 32 yards, yeah, he should have made it. But you're really telling me that you're going to just dump all the blame on a, a 20-year-old walk-on kicker who's never been in an environment like that in his life? No. The blame for me is on your $5 million a year head coach who just got another one of these ridiculous lifetime contract extensions. And I just, I cannot continue to, and and you, you just, I don't know how anyone can continue to justify Mike Gundy just basically coaching like it's 2005 and 2021 when the entire rest of football is evolving. Everyone else is evolving except Mike Gundy. And, you know, if you run the kicker out there, then you can come out tomorrow and you can say, well, we just got to execute. We got to make kicks. If you go for it on fourth there and you don't get it, then you have to answer questions about your decision. But it's still the right decision. You can't coach scared. That's, my, that's the only beef I've ever had with Gundy. That's the only beef I've ever had with Gundy. Stop coaching scared in big games. It's usually bedlam when it rears its ugly head. This year, it was Iowa State. Stop coaching scared in big games. It's the one huge knock everyone has against you. And again, Oklahoma State finds itself on the wrong side of an evenly matched, close game that they had every, every bit of business winning because Mike Gundy elected to play safe. Stop being safe and go try to win the game. Exactly. And it's all about situations, right? Like this was not like, and again, the 32 yard field goal, like Mike, Mike's explanation was quote, it's hard to not take the lead when you're on the road. It's a fairly easy field goal and you're on the road. You got a chance to take the lead. If I had to do it again, I'd take the lead. I'd kick a field goal. If I knew he was not going to make it, I wouldn't. But if I was in the same situation, I'd do it again. Well, then he'd be wrong again. He would be wrong again. 
Yeah, let's talk about the situation. I mean, it's not fourth and five. You're on their 15-yard line, and it's fourth and one. You have to go for that. Like, I understand it's an easy field goal. That puts you up three on the road. I get it. But if it's fourth and five, you kick it. If it's fourth and one, you have to go for it. You have to. And that's not even adjusting for the fact that you have a walk-on kicker that's played two games, as you said. He was four for four at that point. But, like, you're right. Scared money don't make none. And Mike just he just cannot – and look, we, we just talked all last week about how Mike's been great in close games and it typically works out. And I just think it it's, comes down to situational football. Situation, fourth and one. You want to put it in your best player's hands. Situation, there's 60,000 people in Ames going absolutely psycho. A field goal is not going to stem that tide. Picking up a first down and going in and scoring a touchdown is going to severely swing the tide. And you just – you got to have more killer instinct, man. You do. And I know it's worked out for Mike a lot being conservative, but that's in certain situations when you're at home, when your defense is playing well. The defense did not play as well in this game. You have to factor that in too, the way Brock Purdy was able to dice them up some. So, again, I just I, – I think you can look in the mirror and not getting it on fourth and one a lot easier than you can look in the mirror saying, ah, I settled for a 32-yard field goal with a, with a walk-on on fourth and one. I just, I just do. Another thing, you've got Spencer Sanders frustrated on the sideline when you don't go for it. You know the other guys were frustrated on the sideline that they didn't go for it there. Because, again, it wasn't fourth and one. It was fourth and less than a foot. And you told uh, Chris Godlewski, and you told Josh Seals, and you told Spencer Sanders, and K- K- Braden Cassidy, and Tay Martin, and Brendan Presley, and Jalen Warren. You told those guys, I don't think you can get a foot. So you come over here. You come over here because I don't think you can get a foot, and I certainly don't think you have a better chance of getting a foot than Tanner Brown does of making a 32-yard field goal. I just – you're sending the wrong message to your team. I, I think that, you know, you, you want your team to have confidence. You want your team to play aggressive. You want them to go out and knock somebody off the ball. And then at a time when the game is hanging in the balance and you have a chance to let them go out on the field and do that, you take it away from them. And you tell them, you know, I don't think you can get that foot. I don't think you can get that foot, so we're going to do something different. I think you're sending the wrong message to your team. It's just – it's the one criticism that I've had of Mike Gundy for years. It's just the in-game mistakes because I, I, I can't think of another word for it. Kicking those field goals were mistakes. And I'm not judging the result, by the way. I mean, I'm sitting there as soon as they run the kicker out on fourth and two for a 50-yarder. I'm like, this is – what are we doing? This is pointless. This is dumb. What's going on here? <laughs> and then fourth and inches, I'm saying the same thing. I, Carson, before that ball was ever snapped, I had let loose so many cuss words at my TV. You, you would have thought you were on – I don't even know. You would have thought you were at the golf course with, with the, the <laughs> profanity I was using toward my television. It's not a guaranteed three points, and even if it is, it, it's still not the right call. I just – I'm exhausted, Carson. I'm exhausted with it. I'm exhausted with the people on Twitter who think that you should run the, the walk-on out there instead of letting the best players on your team try to get a foot. I'm just – I'm exhausted with all of it. Did you think that kick was good, by the way? No, I did not. So it, so it goes directly over the upright, although I – the, it's all about perspective. Like the still photo I saw was kind of at an angle, but it kind of looked like it was more to the right of the, the upright. But it just – it gave me – Horrible, horrible, horrible Quinn Sharp flashbacks going over that upright. And, of course, Fox. I guess Colby just until the end of time, anytime Oklahoma State plays Iowa State, they're going to show video of the 2011 game. Maybe they'll, maybe now they'll show 2021, too, with the fans rushing the field as a seven-point favorite as well. 
but oh, I just I had horrible flashbacks seeing that. Yeah, I, th- I saw the same still shot you saw where somebody posted the football and it looks like it's just inside the upright. I think that, that when that was taken, I'm pretty sure the ball's already behind the upright there because when you watch it on video, it's out to the right. It's starting to try to hook back, but it hooks too late. So I think it goes around the right side of the upright, continues to hook, and then by the time it gets in the net, then it's probably to the left of the upright. But I don't think that he made that field goal. Um, I didn't think Oklahoma State got screwed there. Um, you know, the, the end of the, the, the game, fourth down, yeah, I think it was a first down, but that's just they're going to stick with the call on the field. The most egregious thing that I saw all day was an official who apparently thinks very highly of himself and called back the Xavier Hutchinson touchdown on a taunting at the four-yard line because the guy maybe – it wasn't even like a high step. He took a stride that was longer than his previous strides, and we called back the touchdown. No, ball don't lie. He got his touchdown. But that, to me, was one of the most egregious things I've ever seen in my life. They implemented that rule several years ago, and I remember when they implemented it, I was like – are we really going to take a touchdown off the board if a player taunts on his way into the end zone? And I had seen many touchdowns where a player did far, far more than what Hutchinson did, and they didn't call it. I mean, you want to talk about Big 12 officials thinking the game is all about them. That was an unbelievably horrific call. Maybe maybe the worst I've ever seen considering the penalty versus what it took off the board based on what the kid did you're right he didn't he wasn't going neon Deion sanders into the end zone he wasn't high stepping from like the 20 into the end zone he wasn't like he didn't do the tyree kill pause at the one yard line do a backflip into the end zone i mean that that's what it should take to get that call and and you're right ball doesn't lie i was in a weird way happy they scored a touchdown just so that wasn't the, the talking point of the because that clearly shouldn't have happened and i'm telling you what colby Matt Campbell conniptions on the sideline have become one of my favorite things. Do you remember him in the Big 12 championship game against Oklahoma last year? Absolutely losing his mind. Like, he might have committed a murder if he had gotten his hands on one of those refs in that game and this one. I mean, didn't take a lip reader to figure out what he was yelling at the refs after that call. A lot of BS uh, chants going towards the the referee's way. But that that was one of the most egregious calls I've ever seen because, Colby, this rule's been in play for years, but they've never called that. No, not, not for something like that. And number one, this rule should be scrapped. It should be totally scrapped. What's wrong with a little bit of fun? What's wrong with you roasting the opponent and, hey, you beat him, you're scoring, you want to high step into the end zone? High step into the end zone. First off, the rule is dumb, so the rule should be eliminated because if you don't eliminate the rule, then you're leaving it up to the objectivity of some middle-aged or old white guy standing on the goal line who's having a bad day and he gets his feelings hurt because he thinks Xavier Hutchinson's disrespecting the game by taking a longer stride at the four-yard line. And now you put an official in a position where he has too much power to do something stupid. That's what happened. That official was given too much power to do something stupid. And you know what he did? He utilized every bit of that power. I am serious whenever I tell you that I am uncomfortable with that gentleman being allowed to continue to officiate games because the level of, I don't even know what to call it, just the level of 
uh, I mean, he's, he's just totally removed from reality. If he thinks that he was justified to throw that flag in that moment, I just, I, I can't figure it out. And the fact that he's going to continue to officiate games in the Big 12 is incredibly suspect to me. And I think the conference should be ashamed. I think that that official should be ashamed. And like you said, they are lucky that Xavier Hutchinson scored three plays later, or that would have been the, oh my God, the, the, the talking point of the season would have been that play if it would have determined the outcome of the game. So the, the fact that that guy's going to continue to be on the field officiating Big 12 games, that makes me uncomfortable because he's clearly a loose cannon uh, who's a little power hungry with the yellow hanky. Absolutely. I, I agree with everything you just said. And, and I'm fine, like, I guess. Like, I'm, I'm always been pro. I've always been pro celebration. Like, look, this is an emotional, emotional game. And if you've been down on a sideline, horrific things are said and done to human beings on a football field. That's just, it's a violent game. It's a game play with passion. It's a game play with a bunch of expletives. And let's just say Hutchinson and the guy covering him had been jawing all game. In my opinion, I think he should be able to taunt on his way in the end. I got the better of you. You were talking shit all game. Here's what's going to happen now that I'm scoring. So I, I've always leaned that way with celebrations and taunting. I think it's stupid. But for the sanctimony of the game, if you want to have this rule, fine. You can throw the flag on that play, but you can't take a touchdown off the board. If you want to assess it on the on the on either the extra point or the kickoff, fine. Do that. There, there should never be a rule left to that subjectiveness to take a touchdown off the board if there was no actual penalty incurred in terms of you know, the, the standard penalties that, that operate on a, on a given football play. So that was just – that was egregious, and that's probably a preview of my, my BB moving forward. But Well, and, and just real quick, do you know how hard it is to get 100% of people to agree on something, particularly <laughs> in sports when they are on such different sides? I have not seen one human being, whether it be on social media, in person, not one person has said – you know what? He was taunting. That was the right call. Every Oklahoma State fan thought, wow, what an absolute joke. Every Iowa State fan was about ready to do unspeakable things to that man. Even my mother, for the first time in my life, Carson, my mom disagreed with a call that went in Oklahoma State's favor. <laughs> my mom said, and I quote, that was a load of bullshit. And yes, nailed it 100%. And that's the biggest Oklahoma State homer on the planet. You, you can't get that many people to agree about anything. And it took that official to make that call to get us all to be lockstep about something. Yep, that's how egregious it was. Um, some positives here. I, I thought Spencer Sanders played a really good game. I did. He ended up 15 of 24, 225 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. And, you know, there were... That one of the, the last series of the games that they had, they had a low snap and had to take a sack. I just felt like as well as he played, he got very little help around him. The pass blocking was better. But just it doesn't it feel, Colby, like the receivers don't do Sanders any favors? Like how many times does Sanders do the surrender Cobra when a guy drops a pass? It feels like it happens at least once or twice a game. And it, a critical one was, was Jaden Bray. Uh, on one of the last series where he, he threw kind of one of those screen routes to him. He was going to pick up an easy five, six yards, and he drops it. And Sanders is out there doing the surrender Cobra. It just, it just feels like even when Sanders is playing really well, things just kind of go against the guy, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does feel that way. He played really well yesterday. Um, he, there were two great plays by receivers, so we will say that. There were two dynamite great plays by Oklahoma State receivers. Brennan Presley at the end of the first half. Uh, and by the way, I, I didn't think that the officials – not the officials. I didn't think that the broadcast uh, did Spencer Sanders justice. I, I, I mean, they acted like he just wildly threw it up into double coverage. The safety on the backside was out of position. He was too far to the middle of the field. Spencer threw that ball far enough left across the end zone to where that safety on the backside wasn't going to be able to get there. So then it was pretty much just Brennan Presley in that corner, and you're giving your guy a chance to go make a play. If that ball had been underthrown by a yard, that play doesn't get made. So I thought that that was a great throw. And then maybe the best throw of Spencer Sanders' career was the one to Tay Martin at the front pylon, where Tay Martin just makes a ridiculously great grab uh, in the front of the end zone. So those were the two great plays from Oklahoma State receivers. There were several drops. I mean, Spencer was 15 of 24. He completed more than 60% of his passes, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Spencer was really good yesterday, even with the few drops. Ben Presley had a drop uh, on a screen pass. Jaden Bray had the drop when he would have picked up a first down. And I, I'd have to go back. Somebody let me know if I'm wrong. But I believe that was on the second and five that preceded the three-yard run and then the screen to Presley to end the game. So I, yeah. I believe that was a very impactful play. And uh, – it just it didn't go Oklahoma State's way. So there have been some drops. Rashad Owens had some. Jaden Bray had a big one. Brennan Presley's had a few. Uh, Tay Martin last week had a couple of big ones. It's just it, it seems like for whatever reason, you know, Spencer will have a bad day, and then the next week Spencer will be slinging it, and then the receivers kind of let him down a few times. It's just and, – and those are the margins. Those are the margins. A drop screen pass on second and five whenever you're marching down to try to win the game – those are the margins in college football in the Big 12 uh, whenever you're on the road playing against a good team. And it's just Iowa State did the little things right yesterday, and Oklahoma State didn't, and the little things are what won Iowa State the game. Yeah, they're not even in that fourth and two situation if he just hangs on to that, that screen pass. You're right. The, the margins get lost because we focus on Presley floating over Godlevsky's body. But you're right. Those plays really added up. And it, you're, the Brennan Presley catch, he's five foot eight. Did it look, it, it looked like the, you know, the players now when they score touchdowns, the offensive lineman will like lift up the little guy to, to be <laughs> to like seven, eight feet up in the air. So you can dunk a basketball or even higher than that. It looked like a lineman did that to him on that play without him being there like he floated up it would look like he had like a 50 inch vertical on that play it was absolutely astonishing how high Presley got up for that ball and he said after the game size is deceptive and he certainly looked like the player that we've all been begging to get the football because he had one of his best games in an OSU uniform and really played well and that was a hell of a catch but I thought the throw that you mentioned to Tay Martin it's a timing route but the most, and the way he timed it up to get to get Tay in the corner there, and just the the catch from Tay was NFL caliber. Obviously, the throw was as well. But the most impressive part to me was Colby. Earlier in the season and earlier in his career, Sanders doesn't step up into that throw, into that pocket, getting hit the way he did on that on that throw. He hadn't done that a lot in his career, and I thought that was a huge, huge step for him. Stand tall in the pocket, step into that throw with a D, D lineman or linebacker, whoever it was, basically hitting him at, on his follow through and to deliver that football. That was an NFL caliber throw and really just is what makes Spencer so tantalizing with his, his throwing ability. And I just thought the, the way he stepped up in the pocket was, was big and, and, and a big improvement on what we've seen in games past.
Yeah, I mean, he had a big D lineman right in his face, and he knew that he was coming. He knew he had to get it out right when he did, and he still put it on an absolute dime for Tay Martin. And, and then on the Presley catch and the elevation, do you remember Slam Ball? Do you remember watching Slam Ball ever? Remind me what that is. It was the basketball. It was on, like, it was basically like an ESPN, the Ocho type sport. Oh, on trampolines? On trampolines. Yeah. And then one guy would be on the trampoline and one guy would be on the regular floor. And the guy who was on the regular floor had no <laughs> chance because he didn't get to the trampoline in time. That's what it looked like on Brennan Presley's touchdown <laughs> catch. It looked like Brennan Presley got to the trampoline and the other guy was still standing on the hardwood. I mean, he got so high up over that dude's head. I mean, there aren't too many times that a DB gets mossed that bad by a 5'8 receiver. It was really impressive to see him get up like that. Yeah, that was awesome. And look, I think the OSU defense played well for the most part. Their, their tackling to me is just watching that game immediately after the Oklahoma game and how poor OU is on defense tackling just ball carriers is night and day. Like that's still a massive strength of this defense. But my concern was Brock Purdy. He's played really well. He's got 10 touchdowns and zero interceptions in his last four or five games coming into this one. And he finishes 82% passing. I mean, 27 of 33, 307 yards, two touchdowns. They had that one drive late in the game where he had that long pass to, to Brees Hall, who was really kept in check uh, running the football. But the defense, Colby, just didn't quite play as well as they have for the most part of this year. And I think Iowa State deserves a lot of credit for that. But they just they gave up too many big plays. Simple as that. Uh, they did. It's I would say it's a tough team to defend. Brock Purdy, when he's not turning the ball over, is a really good quarterback. Brees Hall, really good running back. Xavier Hutchinson, good receiver. Charlie Kohler. I mean, that's a hard team to defend. Defense only gave up 24 points. You're in a position at the end of the game for your offense to go win it. It was time for once, Carson, for the offense to bail out the defense instead of it being the other way around, and they just didn't get it done. I, I know that, you know, they had the chances and the camera angle and all that. They had a good chance, but, you know, the defense only gives up 24. You only give up 24 to a good team like Iowa State. you you got to go out and score more than 24 points. I, I have a hard time putting it on Oklahoma State's defense. It just – they I thought they did enough. Now, did they get the stops late? No, they didn't. I mean, Iowa State scored 17 points in the second half, but I thought the defense did enough against a good offense that kept them guessing. It's like the, uh, the, the quick slant that turned into a long touchdown. Well, I mean, you're up front. You're trying to shut down Brees Hall. That was, your, that was your strategy, right? Shut down Brees Hall. You did. What happened? They go play action. They burn you over the middle. Guy has wheels and gets to the end zone. It's just they were so physical early in that game. There was a big play early in that game, I thought, uh, Iowa State had gone on a, a reasonably long drive, uh, and I believe it was the second quarter. It was. it was. It was late in the second quarter whenever they tied the game up 7-7, seven to seven, and there was a fourth down and goal from about the one or two-yard line, and Matt Campbell wisely makes the decision to go for it there. Xavier Hutchinson gets a little quick out on Christian Holmes, makes the catch, and that play to me was so key in the game because Oklahoma State's defense had been so physical at the goal line, and that drive took a lot out of the defense, I think, physically, and then seven still wound up on the board. So I thought that was a huge play in the game. All the credit goes to Matt Campbell for trusting his offense to get a yard and putting his team in the best position to win the game. Those are the decisions. That's the execution. Um, and Iowa State made a big play there. So we always focus on what happens in the fourth quarter. That was a huge play that happened in the second quarter. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like, I'm, I'm being a little too critical of the defense because as I was just thinking about the game in its totality, 
like how many big stops did OSU get on third and fourth down especially? I mean, Iowa State ends up 5 of 14 on third down, 1 of 3 on fourth down. Like, you're right, Colby. Like, this defense has done enough to win the game in terms of getting stops, key stops on fourth down. They've done that really for two years, and usually that's been enough. It's been enough this year, despite their offense struggling. And that's why I picked Iowa State. I just didn't think that that would be enough because I thought Iowa State had just just enough success offensively over the course of four quarters. And you're right. I mean, 24 points, like, you're probably not going to beat Iowa State if you can't score more than 24. And that's that's totally what happened. But Well, if I, if I can jump in and make one more point here, you know, Iowa State goes one of three on fourth down. Oklahoma State stuffed them early in the game on a fourth and one. They went shovel pass to Charlie Kolar. I hate that play call in short yardage situation, by the way. Everything's so congested in the middle, and you just go right into the teeth of it. But that's a great play. Devin Harper stands him up, drives him back. Fourth and two, a little bit later, Brock Purdy tries to get the edge. It's not there. But you know what happens? They got They got one of them. And that turned three into seven. You go for it on fourth down, you're not going to get it every time. You don't need to get it every time. You get, let's say, we go back to the Oklahoma State, fourth and two and then fourth and inches. If you get one of those fourth downs and you're able to go on and finish that drive and score, that's seven. That's seven. Even if you make both field goals, that's six. And the 50 yarders is a low percentage. I just, again, I'm, I'm getting on my soapbox again. But you don't have to get them all on fourth down. Matt Campbell tried it three times, only got it once. But the one time he got it, it got him seven. And I don't think he regrets going for it on those other two. He showed confidence in his offense. And you know what happened? They were confident in themselves late in the game, and they came out and made the necessary plays. So a uh, lot of credit to Matt Campbell because I thought he coached a great game on Saturday. Yeah, and Campbell has one of the more experienced kickers in the Big 12. I mean, a Sally, is that how you say his last name? I always say Ass Alley. It's but not I Ass Alley. Is it a Sally? <laughs> I laugh every time they put his name I up. I do too. Poor kid. But that's that, that literally is one of the most experienced kickers in all of college football, let alone the Big 12. And, and Matt Campbell's sitting there going for it on fourth down. But Colby, one of the most one of the most maddening and just shocking stats that I can remember following Oklahoma State football in my life. OSU through seven games has scored three points in the third quarter. Mm. It's simply hard to fathom over that sample size of football. They only have a field goal in Austin in the third quarter. That's it. They're getting beat 44 to 3 in that in the third quarter alone this year. That it's amazing they were 7 and 0 coming into the game with because the third quarter it's it's not the fourth quarter but man that, that's a huge swing to to lose a third quarter 44 to 3 over span of one season and, and Mike Gundy was said after the game that um, we need to look at a different way to present ourselves with opportunities in the second half sitting here right now I really don't have an answer for you. And I don't either, Colby. And, again, I think the last game, I think a lot of it came down to getting penalties um, for the offense to put them in, in terrible situations for third and longs. But that's been a big bugaboo this year, man. The third, the third quarters, it's, that's, not a, that's not a really glowing endorsement of Casey Dunn and Mike Gunning and his offensive staff getting an, an entire halftime only to score three points through seven games. So seven halftimes. Now, you go in. You, you watch what happened in the first half. You break it down. You, you talk to your guys. You get everybody on board with the game plan for the second half. And then you come out, and in seven tries, you have a field goal in the third quarter? I, I mean, you talk about not a good look for the offensive staff. That is the, the statistical improbability of scoring three points in the third quarter in, in seven games is – I mean, I can't make any sense of that at all. And, and I – 
you know, it's, it's not like we can put our finger on it. It's not like anybody's in the locker room. We don't know what's being said in there. Uh, you know, I'm sure that they're, they're giving the motivational speeches. I'm sure they're putting a plan together for the third quarter. But they're 0 for 7 now on putting together a successful third quarter plan at halftime. I, I just – it's wild to me. It, it just – it seems impossible that you could score three points in the third quarter coming out of halftime for uh, a majority of your season. And that's got to change because you, you just – you're putting yourself in a situation where a lot has to go right in the fourth quarter for you to win games. Last week against Texas, what happened? They were bad in the third quarter, but a lot of things went right in the fourth quarter. In Ames, you know, some things went right in the fourth quarter, some things went wrong, but you, uh, you really put yourself behind the eight ball by getting beat 10 nothing in the third quarter. So third quarter woes are a big, big problem for Oklahoma State, and I, I mean, I'm not in that locker room, so I don't know what it takes to get that fixed. Yeah, and I, I know – they don't have just a ton of time to, to reinvent the wheel. Um, I understand like halftime. A lot of it's just getting everyone in the locker room and you don't have a, you're not sitting there breaking down on the whiteboard an extensive, you don't you just don't have that kind of time during halftime of college football. But I think I have to go through their schedule, but OSU will always defer when they win the toss. So I think a majority, I want to say a majority of the games this year, they've also had the ball first to start to, to start the third quarter. They did yesterday. They did yesterday. They did at Texas, which ended in a punt. Um, my computer's running slow. The Baylor got it to start the second half um, in their game, and I have to go through it game by game. But no, that's that's a huge problem, and there's no real answer for it other than I think that's something that has to fall at the feet of the coaching staff. I really do. So, uh, a few positives uh, defensively. Colin Oliver is a stud. He's a star. I mean. He got another sack that brings his season total to a team-best four-and-a-half sacks on the year. Um, he's averaging 1.3 sacks during the past three games. And this is from Marshall Scott's 10 Thoughts. Everyone should go read it. He says, let's say Oliver does that exactly for the rest of the season, his sophomore year and his junior year. That puts him roughly at 47 career sacks. For reference, Leslie O'Neill had 34 sacks in his career, and that's the record for Oklahoma State. Wow. That's the kind of pace he's on. Obviously, he's not going to get a 47 sacks in three years. We don't think. He, may, he might. But that just kind of shows you and gives you perspective on the pace this guy's at. He's, he's like Calvin Bundage on steroids right now, the, the fellow Santa Fe Wolf, and he's just – he's awesome, man. He's, he's a difference maker on defense getting after the quarterback. Yeah, he is so quick off the edge. And, I mean, the sack that he got, I believe that Oklahoma State rushed three on that play and then had a spy for Brock Purdy, seven guys in coverage. And he just comes around the right side, and that right tackle didn't know what hit him. He had no – he's like, oh, my God, he's gone. Brock Purdy's on his back. It was so fast with his speed around the edge. And I think that, you know, obviously film gets out on guys and you understand who needs chipped and all that stuff. Colin Oliver is going to start getting that respect. They're going to start sending the back out of the backfield to chip him on his way. He's going to start getting chipped by tight ends. And, and teams are going to start to respect his speed coming around the corner so much more than they have to this point because – I mean, at this point, he's young. There's not a lot of film on him, and he just doesn't have the respect uh, of the offense clearly that he deserves as what, you know, is kind of looking like an elite pass rusher at this point. So he's been great for Oklahoma State. Yep, he's been awesome. And look, big picture, OSU's not out of the Big 12 title race. They have Kansas at West Virginia, at home against TCU, at Texas Tech, then Oklahoma, Bedlam to finish the year. I think it would take a disastrous performance not to win out going into Bedlam. I really do. And 
So it's now kind of a, a three-horse race between them, Iowa State, and Baylor. Iowa State has at West Virginia, Texas at home, at Texas Tech, at Oklahoma, and TCU to end the year. That I don't think Iowa State's done losing this year with that, with that slate. And it comes down to Baylor as well. Baylor has Texas at home, at TCU, OU at home, at K-State, Texas Tech at home. I think Baylor has a far more favorable schedule than Iowa State does moving forward. And I guess the scenario, Colby, is that if you're OSU, you kind of need to root for Texas because if OU and Texas went out and OSU only loses to OU, OSU's going to the Big 12 championship game because of the head-to-head against Texas. So you got to throw up your horns. you got to hook them horns, baby. That's what you got to root for moving forward. Yeah, that's going to be uncomfortable. You know, we don't really like doing that. But whatever gets Oklahoma State to Jerry's world, um, you know, the, the way Oklahoma State has played this season, I'm not ready to just chalk up TCU, West Virginia, and Texas Tech as three wins because Oklahoma State has found ways, even against teams that they should be a lot better than, to just, you, you know, I don't want to say play down to the level of their opponent, but they just seem to always find themselves in these close games. They've done it seven times now. And if they find themselves in close games with TCU, West Virginia, and Texas Tech, do they win all three? I I don't know. So uh, you got to take care of business. Obviously, this week is Kansas. No, I don't have any more respect for Kansas uh, after them, you know, competing with Oklahoma because Oklahoma was sleepwalking on Saturday. You'll steamroll Kansas. Uh, Twenty-eight point favorites is what the line opened as, and then those last four games, you three and one has to be the minimum. That has to be the absolute minimum if you want to find yourself in a Big Twelve championship game. No, and I, I think you're right, man. Like they're not explosive enough on offense to just chalk up wins against anybody. They're just not. I mean, their defense is good enough to hold teams in check, but if you can't put points on the board, you can't convert third downs. I think I, OSU was. God, they were just atrocious on third two, down. Two they were 2 for 10. 2 of 10 and 0 for 1 on fourth down. So 2 of 11 on on third and fourth downs. That's just It's hard to win, man. That's that was my concern coming into this game and it, and it came to fruition, but I want to talk a little bit more about kind of the national scene in terms of, you know, who's playing well, who who's any good at all. But uh, first, let's get to our bullets and BB segment. This is where we give out positives and negatives of the weekend. Uh, I'll start with my bullet uh, there's a lot to choose from here defensively and offensively, but I, I got to go Brennan Presley. Look, I, this kid is special. And if you just get him involved, if you just throw him the dang football, good things are going to happen. He had a drop who we mentioned, but just the utilizing him on those short, the short passing game is such an easy, efficient way to move your, move the chains. And it's basically an extension of the running game because Presley is so electric when he gets the ball in his hands. Like that, that first guy has no chance to tackle him. He might touch him. He might slow him down a little bit, but he's not going to the ground. The guy is just, he's so elusive, just like his younger brother, who I cannot wait to see in Stillwater. He's just, he's a baller, man. And at 5'8, he just, he mossed a dude. And he's only, what, he's a redshirt freshman now. I guess he got the year back from COVID, but. The, I cannot wait till both Presleys are on the field and they can they can scheme ways to get them the football in their hands in open space because for an offense that struggles to get first downs, an offense that struggles in general, you got to keep looking for 80. And I thought they've done a much better job of that the last few weeks. They have, and he was great yesterday. Uh, I mean, just great. The catch in the end zone, couple of – I mean, even the first touchdown catch. The first touchdown catch dives – pins it to himself so even though the ball touched the ground he never lost control so Brennan Presley was really good yesterday I had narrowed my bullet great route on that too great route great catch 
Yes, great route. Uh, you know, I think Spencer thought that he was coming out of his break a little more hot than he was and ended up leading him probably six inches too far, which made him have to dive and make a great play. So uh, that was a good connection. But I had it narrowed down to Brennan Presley and Spencer Sanders for my bullet. You gave it to Brennan, so I'll give it to Spencer Sanders. Spencer Sanders is – he's an enigma, man. He, he can do what he did against Baylor, and he can do what he did against Iowa State. And there's no way to know which guy you're getting on which day. But when you get good Spencer – He's pretty good, man. I mean, that throw to Brennan Presley at the end of the first half, I, I know people are going to say he just heaved it and got lucky in double coverage. I disagree. I think he threw it exactly as far as he needed to. If that ball's underthrown by a yard, it gets picked. I think he threw it exactly close enough to the sideline as he needed to to keep it away from the safety who was too far to the middle of the field. I thought that was a great throw. The throw to Tay Martin with pressure in his face might have been the best throw of the entire season. And, I, I mean, he was – marching them down the field at the end of that game. And he looked comfortable, he looked confident, and he looked like he was going to continue slinging it. And, and I really, as they were driving down the field, I, I actually felt like they were going to go score a touchdown. I, I had that confidence. And Jaden Bray has the drop on second down. You, you don't get the call to go your way on fourth down, and that stifles the drive. But I thought that Spencer Sanders was really good yesterday and really uh, gave his team a chance to win the game. So uh, Spencer gets my bullet. I totally agree, and I just wish Mike Gundy would just queue up, and look, I know he doesn't want to just queue up Oklahoma footage, but just he really needs to go study how Lincoln Riley utilized Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts is not a great thrower of the football. He's doing the same thing in the NFL he did at Oklahoma. He's a, he's a good athlete, really good runner, can make enough plays throwing the football, very similar to Spencer Sanders in my opinion. And what was, what was beautiful about what, what Lincoln did with Jalen Hurts was he basically was running the inverse of a typical play-action play. Play-action, you fake the handoff, look to pass. What he started doing with Hurts was he would drop him back, and it was a play-action, pretending like you're going to pass it, and then boom, two, you have two pulling linemen all the way out to the left side of the field, plus the receivers. You all of a sudden have a wall for Jalen Hurts to just run it out to the left. It's essentially the inverse of play-action. And Sanders is so good running the football. There were a couple of his runs, that one late where the guy tried to tackle his shoelace from behind was a great run to extend that drive. I just wish they would utilize his legs in that same way where it's not just an obvious quarterback draw. It's not just an obvious, you know, zone read. I thought Lincoln Riley was brilliant in how he, he realized Jalen Hurts was a pretty limited thrower down the field. And he, he literally – the first time I ever seen that really run consistently was a reverse play action. I hope they can do that with him moving forward because that he's such a weapon running it too. Yeah. And just, I mean, just listening to all that. And I agree with every word. He, he's really good running the football, especially for a quarterback. It just makes it sting even that much more that we didn't get to see that guy uh, have a chance to convert a fourth and two or a fourth and inches, e either one of which could have led to a touchdown drive and totally changed the complexion of that game. It's just, um, you know, let your players make plays. That, that's what I would say. Let your players make plays. Do you want to do a joint BB? Uh, <laughs> I don't think we're giving it to the same guy. You go ahead. Okay. Uh, this is going straight to the Big 12 officiating headquarters. To, to call that play dead and take the touchdown off the board for Iowa State was egregious. And just the second that the play with Presley happened, and before they even spotted it and measured it, I'm just saying they're going to get this wrong because it's the Big 12. How many times have we seen this? I go back to Texas and Stillwater down the goal line. They get that play call wrong, and the guy was totally short. 
everyone watching the game could tell that Presley fell on top of Godlewski and got past the marker just in real time. You could tell that on the replays. You could tell that for some reason, people who are paid good money to make real calls that affect an undefeated college football season are incapable of making the call. Even with limited camera footage, you could tell he got it. And here we are talking about big 12 officiating. It's, it's, one thing that I was probably looking forward to most of conference realignment is if OSU were able to get out of this league. So we don't have to lis- listen and watch these Big 12 officials. They're inept, man. The, it, other conferences, I'm sure, have missed calls every single week. We just watch the Big 12 every week. I understand that. But you just look across the nation. I mean, we weren't seeing that call made anywhere else in the country of the Iowa State kid getting his, his touchdown taken away. And I got to think they would have looked at that play a lot better in other officiating rooms and made the right call. I don't know. It's just big 12 officiating is consistently wrong. It is consistently disappointing. And I just hate the fact that we have to talk about it every week because it's, it's atrocious every week. So that's my view. And, and it's painful every single time that it costs you. It's just, that was such a big game for Oklahoma state and what's turning in to what's could have been and still could be a very big season for Oklahoma State. And, and by the way, the, the officiating staff in Boise was a joint staff, and most of it was Big 12 officials. Remember how poorly officiated the Boise State game was? The weird fumble, non-fumble call that went OSU's against OSU or with OSU. I can't Terrible officiating regardless, no matter if the Big 12 is involved. It's always the Big 12. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, my BB is going to Mike Gundy. You know, if I could ask Mike Gundy one question, it would be, you know, what are you so scared of on fourth, on fourth and short? What, what are you so scared of? He has more job security than any coach in the country. They made sure of that again late last week with the lifetime contract, which I think is bad. You want to extend him, that's fine. I don't like the perpetual rollover deal. That just, it doesn't make sense to me from a business standpoint. Things can change so quickly in the landscape of college athletics. He almost got fired. Yeah, yeah, I he just, literally almost got fired, you, you and know, they're rolling over his contract again for, for a fifth year. You're you're having a great season. I get it. You you want to you want to make sure that he feels the love and gets the year back that he lost during COVID with the OAN deal and, and gets the money back that he lost the pay cut that he took uh, whenever COVID happened. That's fine. The perpetual rollover thing I don't get, but I especially don't understand a guy who's on a lifetime contract being unwilling to go for it on fourth and short and, and give his team a chance to win the game. So, um, you, you know, you can blame Tanner Brown if you want. Tanner Brown should have executed. I'll give you that. Tanner Brown's a walk-on kicker who's never been in that situation in his life. Mike Gundy's been doing this for 16 years. The game has evolved, and he needs to evolve. There's no reason that the kicker should have been run out in those situations. And I think that if Oklahoma State converts either of those fourth downs, they probably win that game. Uh, and, and I think that Mike Gundy uh, really, really hurt his team yesterday and, and gave them a, a smaller percentage chance to win uh, than if he would have done what the numbers said. And just, to me, what I think common sense says in those situations. So uh, as poor as the officiating was, I, I give it to Mike Gundy because I think that, uh, that that had more of a negative impact on Oklahoma State even than the officiating did. And it wasn't even a Bedlam game. Like, we're used to that in Bedlam, right? Like, the OU logo shows up, gets a little tight, gets a little conservative. Oh, let's just not screw this up. But it was on the road at Iowa State, who Mike Gundy owns. So, that makes it even more frustrating. But 
Let's get to the uh, Chris's University Spirit uniform review brought to you by Chris's University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop. Be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com. Colby, you nailed it. I, I told you you probably nailed it. I went. I, I was trying to like enforce my own opinions on the uniforms, but they're they're big believers in uni karma. They went black, white, gray. Yeah, that's what I tried to do earlier this year when I when I said maybe they'd run out the all whites. They're they're starting to get pretty predictable as far as what they wear uh, and where they wear it. So. Black, white, gray. I was right. Don't even get to enjoy it. Don't even get to celebrate because I'm just still so disappointed with how it all played out yesterday. Do you like the look, black, white, gray? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't. Do you? No, I hate it. I mean. Yeah. I think it's the, one of the worst combinations they have. Yeah, I agree. Like, the gray pants are fine. I just, that, that just, that combo looks so much better with the orange pants. Are you, Maybe even white. I don't know. I mean, I like, probably like the gray better than the black, white, white. But I don't know. The gray to me is a nice accent to wear at home every now and then. I'd much rather just wear white tops, orange or black pants, and then whatever hell, whatever the hell helmet you want to throw out there. That's kind of how I look at it. Uh, yeah, I agree. The gray is – I don't really like the gray in almost any situation. I, I think that by far the gray – uh, takes a look that could be better and makes it worse. You know, if those pants are orange, it's a better look. If those pants are white, it's a better look. If those pants are black, it's a better look. Same thing every time they wear the, the gray jerseys and the gray helmets. I get it. You've got all these combinations. Some people probably think the gray is cool. It's just not for me. Just not my thing. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, nationally, Colby, who's any good besides Georgia? Uh, I still think Alabama is good. Uh, after they lost to Texas A&M, I made sure to go in and place a bet on them to win the national championship at plus 260 because I knew we wouldn't get those odds again the rest of the season. Uh, mm, I, I, would still choose Al- I would still pick Alabama to win the national title. But aside from that, Cincinnati escapes a bad Navy team on Saturday. OU is – I mean, look, OU is still a good team. But is OU a, one of the five – best teams in the country i don't know i mean they keep winning these close games so you you give credit for winning but they haven't been overwhelmingly impressive aside from the one game against tcu maybe they were just asleep against kansas i still think they're the best team in the big 12 and i still think that they'll win the conference but i i can't really find any teams that i would comfortably that, that i would feel comfortable saying that team will win their conference that team will make the college football playoff. That is a national championship caliber team. The only two teams I feel comfortable saying that about are Georgia and Alabama. Yeah, that's where I fall. I, I will say this for Cincinnati. Like, and part of this is I have a, one of my better friends is a, is a massive Cincinnati Bearcat, fellow, a friend of the show, Vic Ramji. Oh, he love fo- it. Shout out, Vic. He follows the Bearcats really close. And what people don't realize, and he's, he's obviously – giving me this intel i don't follow cincinnati football by any means but i am a big fan of luke fickle i think he's one of the up-and-comers one of the next big things in the sport but people just forget that cincinnati took georgia to like a one-point game in the bowl game last year and we would all agree georgia's the best team in the country and cincinnati didn't have four guys that sat out to go to the draft and people act like cincinnati's this little engine that could they're going to have like five or six guys drafted like high this year, like, like high, like top, first four rounds high. Like they're good. And I know they struggled. They were up like 14, 17 late. Navy scored a, a couple late touchdowns to, to make it look that close. But, and again, that's not an impressive win by any means, but I think Cincinnati's a lot better than people are giving them credit for. I, I clearly think if they went out, they're in, 
but I, I, I just, I don't think they're getting enough credit for how good they really are with that, that head coach and, and that, that quarterback Desmond Ritter is really good too. But uh, I agree with you that they have more talent than your typical power five or your typical group of five team. But you, you think if they went out, they're getting there. No question. I see. I've seen it too many times. Alabama has one loss. They could run the table. That would leave Georgia with one loss. That would have Alabama and Georgia in. If OU and Ohio State both run the table, does Cincinnati get in over one of those teams? I, ugh, that There's a scenario where I think we could see Georgia, Alabama, OU, and Ohio State in the playoff and Cincinnati on the outside looking in, and everybody is just pissed. I, I could see that scenario happening. Yeah, I mean, if it comes down to a one-loss Ohio State, in Oklahoma, I, I, I mean, I'm not stupid. I followed this sport long enough. Those helmets are getting in over Cincinnati, probably. But I, I do think, though, it's a perfect storm for Cincinnati in that they played Georgia to one point. Georgia knows how damn good Cincinnati is. I guarantee you that. And they, they beat Notre Dame in non-conference. They beat, you know, a Big Ten school in Indiana. And, look, they, they – it's so hard to go undefeated. It is. And I think they did enough in the non-conference. And I think they, they have some – I think people need to factor in how well they played against Georgia. I do. And I know it's a bowl game. I know bowl games don't matter if they're not for the national championship or the playoff. But I just – I think I think they're better than – I mean, they have an Alabama transfer as their starting running back who's just legit. Like, they have, they have dudes. This isn't just – this is not like – Oh, who was the the flavor of the month for those years? Uh, like this isn't like a Boise State running the table and just hoping to get in with their their just basically their conference schedule. It's it to me, it's a different scenario than that. But I will give Oklahoma, I will give Oklahoma a slight pass, not a total pass at all. For <laughs> I thought they could have played their second stringers and covered against Kansas. Clearly, I was wrong about that. But we've seen this for fifteen years, Colby. Going to Lawrence. Playing in front of a high school stadium that's empty is a it's it's tough to get up for that game. I go back to the 2005 Texas team, Vince Young. They won the national title that year. People forget Vince Young had to pick up a fourth and thirteen to stay in the to to survive the game, or they would have lost. He had to pick that up to win that game. Trayvon Boykin, the year TCU was unbelievable and could have gone to the playoff. He had to pick up a late fourth down just to extend that game to to go win it. Like, a lot of great teams have gone up there and not played well. I mean, we know OSU struggled up there a a couple of times, the the Tyree Kill year, uh, most notably. It's just – it's a terrible win for Oklahoma. They deserve to fall in the rankings. I'm not absolving them at all. I just – I've seen that a lot with teams going to Kansas, knowing you're going to win. It's a sleepy atmosphere. You get out to a slow start. That kind of happens sometimes. So, excuse me. Well, OU should definitely drop in the rankings. I, I can see it. But what's weird is OU's 8-0 for the first time since 2004. And this does not feel at all like one of their better teams, especially on defense now, the way they're playing defensively. So as well as Caleb Williams has, been, has played and he's been awesome, I'm not, a, I'm not as afraid of Oklahoma as I've been in years past, particularly with their offensive line not being – like, they've had an NFL offensive line the last five, six years. That was tough to overcome. But the way their defense is playing, with the lack of experience on the offensive line, I think I think Oklahoma State can absolutely win Bedlam this year. I do. And now that that's before we even get into OSU's issues. But I'll just say this. I think OU's right for the picking this year. 
Yeah, I think the biggest mistake Kansas made yesterday, and, and I truly mean this, was opening the gates and filling up the stadium. The, the one home field advantage that Kansas has is that it is dead, and there is no energy, and there's just nothing to get you going. And they took their only home field advantage away. They brought people in. They got fired up, and it fired everybody up, including Oklahoma. I, I thought, you know, you want that place to be as dead as it can be <laughs> if you're a Kansas fan because that's your only home field advantage. Uh, and I agree this Oklahoma team isn't as talented as some in the past. And if you took the uniforms away and the logos away and you just said Team A versus Team B, I would probably like Oklahoma State's chances uh, to, to be in a close game and have a chance to win it late. But when you tell me it's Bedlam, all that confidence goes away and for, for good reason. Uh, Oklahoma State and Mike Gundy has earned that lack of confidence in that game. And until they prove me otherwise, I, I just I can't get there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm certainly with you there. But you just look at OU's resume. I mean, they, they beat Tulane, who's now 1-6, lost by like 100 to SMU by five points. They beat Nebraska by seven, beat West Virginia by three, beat K-State by six, beat Texas by seven. They blew out TCU late. That game was close back and forth for the most part. And then they, they struggled to beat Kansas. I mean, at a certain point, you kind of are who you are, even if you got that OU logo on your helmet. And they got to go to Baylor. Uh, they, they get Tech at home this week. Then they go to Baylor. And that is going to be no gimme. Now they get a bye week between. But I don't know. It's, it's going to be an interesting finish to the season. But it's really a three-horse race between Oklahoma State, Baylor, and Iowa State and obviously Oklahoma to, to, to play them in the, in the Big 12 championship. So as disappointing as the Iowa State loss was, Colby, they're not out of it yet, and we got a, we got a lot of football left. A lot of football left. It, uh, I mean, it closes the door on your college football playoff chances, but you can still go win the conference. Go win the conference. There's a lot still to play for. Um, you know, homecoming this week should be a lot of fun. Kansas is in town. Um, you you going to be up in Stillwater this weekend? I don't know yet. I might. It is homecoming. I ought, I ought to now that I'm off weekends. Yeah, I'll be up there Friday night and Saturday night. So uh, looking forward to hopefully what is a good weekend. And this one should be stress-free. If there is any stress at all against Kansas, things have gone very, very wrong. So uh, <laughs> hopefully it's a good weekend in Stillwater. Yep, happy homecoming week. Uh, Colby, we'll get back with you later this week. Yes, sir. Everybody have a good week. Go Pokes.